this series, we were taking a look at Governor Bly and the so-called Rum Rebellion. In the previous episodes, we'd considered the state of the early New South Wales penal colony as it began developing into a more diverse colonial outpost, at the local political landscape, and at Bly's background and approach to his governorship. We noted just how much power and influence the men who made up the New South Wales Corps, the so-called Rum Corps, had in the colony and how much pressure they could exert in attempting to foil Bly's reforms. We left the last episode just as MacArthur had encouraged the Corps to arrest Bly and assume control themselves. So today we'll finish off the series by looking at just what took place on the day of the coup, who the major players were and the aftermath for Bly, the men of the Corps and for New South Wales. If you haven't listened to the earlier episodes in the Bly series yet, it might be worth going back to do so first to get a refresher on what led up to the actions we're talking about today. And just a small correction from last episode. I think I noted that MacArthur himself was not at the fateful New South Wales Corps dinner held on the 24th, but I said that his sons were present. Actually, only Edward was his son. Hannibal was MacArthur's nephew, who'd returned with him after his last stay in England, but he would have been as loyal and supportive as his son Edward. Before we turn our mind to the rebellion, I'd like to thank Rob C., Jacob McSee, Professor S., and a supporter from San Diego Local, for using the link on the webpage and making a contribution to the program. I'm so grateful for all your support. Thanks a lot. Okay, let's conclude our look at Bly and the Rum Rebellion. been judging MacArthur very harshly all the way through this series, really only focusing on the toxic self-serving behaviour he exhibited, and that I've been cutting Bly a lot more slack, even though he was clearly a difficult, even obnoxious character himself. I can only defend myself by saying, after all the reading, it was really hard to have any respect for the Machiavellian MacArthur. He seemed the type who was willing to throw anyone under the proverbial bus if it meant he would make money or gain some additional influence and power, and he could really hold a grudge and continue acting on it for years. I know that Bly was also an honour-obsessed grudge-holder who could be very rude and aggressive in his communications, thus tending to offend a good many he should have been diplomatically coaxing along. But he gets more regard simply because of the motivations of his actions, which were focused on the common good of the colony, in line with the instructions he'd been given, rather than for personal enrichment. He was attempting to create an environment where the free settler, the emancipated convicts and the ordinary man could try his luck on a level playing field, along with those who felt themselves the elite of the new colony, including the men of the Rum Corps. So for me, one man seemed to be more ethical, operate with more integrity, and aim to be more impartial and socially responsible than the other. However, MacArthur was such an influential person on the development of the colony of New South Wales, and in relation to the emerging prosperity of the wool industry, that I would like to talk about him and about Elizabeth a little more, <laughs> and I'll try not to be so hard on him. So I will release a short postscript to this series, which will focus just on the MacArthur's and on the lucrative wool industry. So that'll possibly be the episode after next when I finish the reading, but fairly soon anyway, to try and make amends for my bias. <laughs> so now today, we're going to return to the morning of January 26th, 
after the debacle in the courtroom the day before, when the officers of the court had refused to sit with the judge advocate Atkins to hear the serious sedition charges laid against MacArthur. If you recall, Atkins had stormed off, effectively shutting down the court, and the court officers had then let MacArthur go free while they considered their next steps. Bly had requested their commanding officer, Johnson, return to town and assist in bringing them under control, but Johnson had taken a fall from his carriage after the boozy officer's dinner the night before, in what Pobgy described as, quote, the very first incidents of the proud Australian tradition of powerful government officials drink-driving, unquote. <laughs> On receipt of Bly's summons, though, Johnson declared he was too badly injured to travel back to town or even provide a written response to address his governor's request, and so Bly was left to deal with the unruly officers without any input from Major Johnson. Hawkey suggested, quote, Johnson's absurd exaggeration of his injury was staged deliberately to isolate Bly, unquote. and that does seem very likely given his miraculous recovery the following day. Though, as he later marched on Government House, he was clearly exhibiting the grazes and arm sling resulting from the fall, so there's no doubt it happened. No formal bail had been granted to MacArthur, the court without Atkins having no legal standing. So, in letting him leave the court instead of returning him to custody, the officers had facilitated yet another breakdown in the legal process, despite trying to cover their tracks. No doubt MacArthur would have used that evening at large to shore up support and solidify plans for his next move. So, on the morning of the 26th, orders were given to Provost Marshal Gore and his constables to re-arrest MacArthur and return him to the jail. Meanwhile, the six corps officers, Captain Kemp, Lieutenants Braben, Moore, Lycock, Lawson and Minchin, returned to the court, declaring that they were awaiting a new judge advocate so that they could proceed with the trial. As they had been advised the day before, no replacement for Atkins would be possible, and so the stalemate continued throughout the day. Bly, in consultation with the magistrates, and taking advice from the only legally qualified person he had on hand, that ex-convict, Crosley, considered that the corps officer's actions amounted to, quote, unlawfully usurping the judicial power with the intent of inciting rebellion, unquote. They had failed to obey the orders they'd been given, refused to enable the legal process required and take instruction from the lawful judge advocate Atkins, allowed the prisoner MacArthur to walk free from the court, and, in making illegal demands about who should sit on the court, they had, according to Evett, acted treasonously. Bly wrote to each man demanding they appear before him at Government House the following morning, January 27th, and he informed the absent Johnson of his actions, stating, quote, I received a verbal message by my orderly from you that you was rendered by illness incapable of being at Sydney. I apprehend the same illness will deprive me of your assistance at this time. I leave it for you to judge whether Captain Abbott should be directed to attend at Sydney to command the troops in your absence. Unquote. As a naval man, Bly would have expected the chain of command to be strong and honourable, the next in command taking charge if Johnson was unable but Johnson's lack of response must surely have given him pause for thought. This was now a very serious predicament for those six corps officers. Should they be found guilty of treason? Well, that was a capital offence, so they may all have reached the point of do or die then. You'll recall that Bly had voiced concerns for many months about the loyalty of the corps and the aggressive influence of those men, now civilians, who maintained immense support amongst the corps officers. 
He had written to Banks about it and to a great many others in roles associated with governing the penal colony of New South Wales, but with apparently no resulting concern or response from the British government. No one was prepared to act to disband or reprimand the Corps, and they must simply have become bolder and more and more comfortable with their approach to the unique military role in New South Wales. And it wasn't just the New South Wales Corps that was unfit for purpose. The lack of competent civil administrators was also a great handicap to all the governors. McCannis quoted from a letter Bly wrote to Banks in October 1807, expressing his concern about the state of rule of law and the military in New South Wales, and included the following, quote, The most material thing to be done to make everyone confident he will enjoy a just and upright government will be to remove without delay the very unfit and very disgraceful judge advocate and here we'd be referring to um, Richard Atkins, and to change the New South Wales Corps and send them to India. <laughs> the officers of the Crown should be honourable men. I am not here for my ease or comfort, but to do justice and relieve the oppressed poor settlers who must be the support of the country and are honester than the men who wish to keep them under, unquote. Atkins had the respect of no one and was glaringly incompetent, but... He had been appointed to that role, and Bly had to work with the men he was given. So with MacArthur's case abandoned for now, and Bly demanding that the six corps officers sworn into the court come to him the following morning and explain themselves, by that afternoon tensions were at an all-time high. Sydney Town was abuzz with the drama. Made aware that his officers were in deep trouble, Johnston, unable to travel or even write the afternoon before, miraculously made his way to the barracks in Sydney around 5pm. Davis reminds us that had he been doing his duty, his first action should have been reporting to his governor, as he had been summoned the previous day. But instead he went straight to the barracks, and it seems likely that earlier embryonic plans were then put into motion. With a number of core supporters already available to report and give him further advice, Activity at the barracks increased, and he began to take charge. By 6.30pm, a military coup was underway in the colony of New South Wales. It had been 20 years to the very day that Governor Philip had proclaimed the establishment of the New South Wales Penal Colony, and it might have been expected that the current governor might mark the occasion. But Davis suggests that Bly, mindful of the tensions that had been building in the previous weeks, had decided against any public festivities. Instead, he hosted a dinner at Government House, though, of course, the attendees would be limited to the influential who were also supporters of the Bly faction. By this stage, the community was very much divided into us and them, behind MacArthur or Bly, it seemed. Even so, Bly was not a great fan of everyone seated at his table, Still, in a small settlement, particularly one divided by politics, one dined with those available. <laughs> Bly's guests that evening included the Campbells, the Palmers, Williamson, the Griffiths, clergyman Fulton, and the Atkins. And so they sat, with a certain background tension, to enjoy the dinner at Government House. Meanwhile, at the barracks, Johnson had sent soldiers to the jailer with a letter ordering him to release MacArthur into the company of Blacksell and Bailey, which he had signed, surprisingly, as Major G. Johnson, Lieutenant Governor. So it was clear at this point he was already intent on usurping Bly. Perhaps a little 
cart before the horse going on here, though. But soon MacArthur came to the rescue. On his release from the jail, MacArthur also made his way to the barracks, where he is supposed to have drafted a petition for Johnston leaning his paper on a cannon in the yard, though it's quite possible it may have been prepared earlier. The petition read, quote, The present alarming state of the colony, in which every man's property, liberty and life is endangered, induces us most earnestly to implore you instantly to place Governor Bly under arrest and to assume the command of the colony. We pledge ourselves, at a moment of less agitation, to come forward and support the measure with our fortunes and our lives, unquote. Pobgy once again provides his interesting insight, declaring that, quote, Thus, New South Wales entered the age of two guys trying to arrest each other. <laughs> Traditionally, in a situation where the governor is trying to arrest someone, and that someone is simultaneously trying to arrest the governor, the governor holds the whip hand. But in New South Wales in 1808, it was not a place beholden to tradition. It was the land of opportunity, where any man, had either drive and the determination, could arrest anyone he liked, especially if the entire army was on his side, unquote. <laughs> oh, very good. Now Johnson had a document that he might use to declare a takeover and to defend his actions. The good people of Sydney could take no more tyranny, it seemed. Well, dozens of good citizens anyway. Though it turned out the majority of the eventual 151 signatories may have signed the document only after the coup had taken place. The tenth signature on the petition belonged to Charles Grimes, and he later admitted that he'd signed it afterwards. The petition itself survives, and I have included an image on the Australian Histories podcast webpage for this episode. It should be noted all the early names on the petition were men with strong and well-aired personal grudges against Bly. Once the Johnson-MacArthur faction was in charge, it would be a brave man indeed who would refuse to sign it too, I expect. This would indicate, supposing the whole affair was not the likely premeditated fait accompli already, that Johnson would have taken his action to overthrow Bly at the request of less than ten persons, many his own officers in a colony with a population of almost 5,000, if I've recalled that figure correctly. The arrogance of these petty princes is astounding. In fact, Davis asserts there's plenty of evidence that the version of the day's events put forward by the MacArthur-Johnson faction was full of fabrication. Imagine our surprise. Well, Davis and many of the other sources I am using are clearly more Bly fans than MacArthur sympathisers, and I'll admit, the more I looked into it, the more I have felt the same way, but we will soon see what the inevitable court-martial decided, before we finish up today. After meeting with MacArthur and some of the other petition supporters, Johnston did announce he would act to take control of the colony, and he summoned his troops back to the barracks. Having the entire corps behind him would likely dissuade potential resistance by the supporters of Bly, had they been in Sydney in any numbers. Of most concern were those citizens of the Hawkesbury, who'd been so public in pledging their support, and therefore, acting quickly, Johnson might avoid any undue violence, which he would need to answer for in England at some point. Once completed, the coup leaders would then have some time to work on the justifications they needed to present to the British government. Letters which Abbott later wrote to ex-Governor King, and which came to light only after Johnson's inevitable court-martial was long over, clearly state that he had been in discussions with Johnson prior to the coup about the best actions to take, 
including encouraging him to hand control immediately over to the next available senior officer and sail directly to England to make his case, thus showing how he was uninvested in the role himself. But Johnson didn't take his advice. Instead, using the opportunity in the following months to enrich himself and others, before he even let his superior officers know what had occurred in April, a couple of months after the coup. Sydney was fizzing with attention over the recent activities, but to suggest that it was, quote, in a state so alarming that a military coup was necessary to restore law and order, unquote, was a massive exaggeration. One prominent citizen recording later, quote, I know not ten respectable citizens in the whole colony who knew anything about the business until it took place, unquote. And Davis notes, the use of respectable citizens would not have included members of the New South Wales Corps in this instance. I think we must say there's no doubt there were a lot of unhappy people, pleased to see the back of Bly, but there were also many very disturbed by the return of the Corps to control of the colony too. So we're left considering that it really was just the Rum Corps and their tight circle in the so-called trading faction who were so desperate to be rid of the Governor. Constable Oakes, though admittedly in the Bly camp, later gave evidence saying, quote, Public peace restored? I didn't know it was ever broke, unless they were the military who broke it, unquote. Certainly, on the day in question, things were calm and civil enough for Bly's guests to make their way through Sydney Town to Government House that afternoon for their dinner. Davis suggests the first sign to them of impending trouble was heard only after their first course, when the drums recalling the soldiers to the barracks were heard. That Johnson's actions were premeditated are bolstered by later evidence that the cannons at Government House had been tampered with in the days or weeks prior, rendering them ineffectual should they be trained downhill on the approaching soldiers, but they could still be turned to fire point-blank at Government House if necessary. The dinner at Government House proceeded, but before they could get to dessert, Atkins had excused himself to see what was going on at the barracks, and he returned to report the activity there. He advised Bly that MacArthur had been released, and that they could expect the New South Wales Corps were being assembled and armed with a plan to march on Government House. Now Bly had to accept, and indeed expect, that the soldiers of the New South Wales Corps, a group charged with protecting and obeying him, would be coming for him in rebellion. He initially arranged for a horse to be readied, intending to ride to the Hawkesbury farming community that were loyal to him, after he had gathered his important papers. But, thankfully, no such ride eventuated, no doubt saving the lives of many who may have been slaughtered in the face of the better-armed militia if any confrontation had occurred. What he did instead was toast the king and retire to change into his dress uniform to meet his foe in full honours though they were aware of rumours that some in the anti-Bly faction thought his assassination would be the best course, he did not seem intimidated. Mary and their guests waited on the veranda, watching for activity down the hill, and they would both see and hear the approaching militia. Johnson's men, armed with muskets and with bayonets fixed, marched through the town and up the hill to Government House, accompanied by fife and drum. Now the people of Sydney came out in force to watch the procession, the children marching along beside, scolded and chased away by Sergeant Major Whittle. Whether they were all aware it was an actual rebellion in process is uncertain, given it may have been celebrations to Mark Phillips' proclamation 20 years prior, 
but it certainly would have looked and sounded impressive and could hardly be ignored. Something exciting was going on. As they approached Government House, the very core members stationed there to protect the Governor deserted their post and joined their comrades marching, just as Bly emerged onto the veranda in full naval uniform. There could be no doubt now what was about to happen, so Bly took Palmer to his office and they began gathering sensitive documents. He intended to carry them away with him to the Hawkesbury and destroy the sensitive ones before the rebels could take possession. Palmer took charge of some, and Bly took the rest into a small room upstairs and began tearing to shreds those that would not fit inside his shirt, his servant later burning them. When the rum corps arrived at Government House, the ever-feisty Mary ran down to the garden gate, holding it closed against their entry. And there may have been a little blinking and thinking. <laughs> they had been, as Pobji noted, quote, stymied by the cunning tactic of shutting the gate. The corps stopped, uncertain of how to deal with this unforeseen circumstance. Nothing in the corps training manual specified the procedure to follow in the event of a young woman closing a gate, unquote. But someone in the corps was an innovative thinker. Mary was soon brushed aside and the troops continued in and surrounded the building, with Mary berating them, yelling, rather dramatically it must be said, "'You traitors! You rebels! You have just walked over my husband's grave and now you come to murder my father. Kill me, if you will, but spare my father!' Johnson took a few men into the building and arrested the male guests, holding them in a room while they searched for Bly. Though they explored the whole complex, they failed to see Bly in his small attic servant's room, hiding with his papers behind the bed when he heard the soldiers approaching. But by then his horse had been removed, so should he have wanted to try and escape, that option was then close to him anyway. In fact, surprisingly, Bly was not discovered there for over an hour. Soldiers once again returned upstairs to recheck, and Bly once again stuffed the remaining documents into his shirt before crouching behind the bed to avoid detection. But this time he was discovered. In an effort to discredit him, the soldiers claimed he was hiding under the bed, shaking and fearful, whereas Bly insisted he was hiding in order to facilitate the destruction of documents, allowing himself as much time as possible, and not because he was scared. Given the circumstances, it would not have been unreasonable to be fearful, all the same. But Bly was a seasoned naval man, a war veteran, who had honourably faced off numerous fearful confrontations in the past. He was well known and commended for great courage during sea battles, at Camperdown and at Copenhagen under the then highly celebrated naval hero Lord Nelson. Certainly he showed all fortitude when faced with the very grave odds of survival after the bounty mutiny. It would be quite out of character, I think, for him to be quaking with fear under a bed when he was more likely to stand in defiance and confrontation with an enemy. And indeed, he continued to defy the new regime afterwards. Either way, the propaganda value of finding him hiding was a great satisfaction for the rebels, and soon afterwards, that image many of us are familiar with was produced and displayed in Sydney the one that shows a pathetic Bly being dragged out from under a small bed by delighted soldiers, the image I have used in this episode's illustration. Do have a closer look. I put a link to a larger image on the website. It was actually a very effective propaganda image, wasn't it? Bly really does look a diminished character. In refuting the image, Davis notes that, quote, 
In an attempt to justify their actions, the mutineers set out to destroy Bly's reputation, with allegations that he was both a bully and a coward. He did attempt to avoid capture, but attempting to avoid capture by the enemy, as long as possible, is not a sign of cowardice. Heroes do that. Cowards surrender quickly, unquote. Okay, well, that's one way to look at it. Certainly, implying he hid under the bed, a sort of childlike action, does conjure a negative impression. But he always denied it, saying he crouched behind it, against the wall, keeping the documents he was working on out of sight, too. At the later court-martial, one of the government house servants gave evidence that the bed in question had rather short legs and that the bed base was only about eight inches from the floor. There would not have been enough room for a man of Bly's size to hide under there, like a child might have. Crouching behind it was a more likely hiding position, but does not give quite the good shame story as saying he was dragged out by the collar. <laughs> While his soldiers searched... Johnson used Bly's desk and stationery to draft a letter advising him Bly was no longer the governor of New South Wales and that Johnson had taken command at the request of its citizens. When Bly was brought into him, the remaining documents he had intact were seized. He was presented the letter and advised that the colony was now under martial law and that Johnson would act in his place until the new governor was appointed by His Majesty. He was advised he would return be returned to England at the first opportunity, and that until that could be facilitated, he was under strict house arrest at Government House, forbidden contact with anyone outside. His guests were finally allowed to leave, though Susan Palmer stayed to provide support for the distressed Mary. As far as rebellions go, it all went very smoothly. No bloodshed, no real drama after Mary was dealt with. <laughs> And now the men of the New South Wales Corps had time to win over the compliant in the community and to develop their excuses required for the inevitable investigation in England. But for the time being, celebrations were in order for the New South Wales Corps and their supporters. Indeed, with plenty of liquor available, many in Sydney joined in the revelries, though it was said some were urged to do so with veiled, or indeed explicit, threats from the soldiers. Householders near the barracks were encouraged to light candles in their front windows as a mark of support, and those failing to do so had the said windows broken. The rum flowed and the soldiers and interested townsfolk enjoyed, quote, illuminations, bonfires, burning effigies, roasting sheep, and all manner of riotous dissipation took place. Liquor was liberally, indeed profusely, served to the soldiers. Bonfires blazed in all parts of the town, and those scenes of riot, tumult, and insubordination that are ever incident to the subversion of legal government and authority ensued. Unquote. As Hawkey noted, quote, Rum had fired the rebellion. In rum it was celebrated. Unquote. Many took the opportunity to dishonourably taunt and belittle the governor with crude effigies, caricature drawings like the under-the-bed one discussed earlier, and provocative little ditties. MacArthur was hoisted high on a chair and paraded around like some kind of conquering hero for vanquishing the tyrant. Johnson may have formally made the moves, but it seemed clear who had been pulling all the strings. <laughs> Indeed, Johnson was once disparagingly described as that turnip-headed fool, Jack Bodice's tool. 
Now, if you recall, MacArthur was labelled Jack Bodice, having been a ladies' staymaker in his youth. So, January 26, 1808, ended with a rather unexpected bang, the revelries going on into the early hours. Johnson had made himself the lieutenant governor, but awarded the powerful role of colonial secretary to MacArthur. Or, as Pobgy put it, quote, MacArthur was made colonial secretary in recognition of his services to the development of organised crime in the new world. <laughs> Unquote. Having snatched the reins of office, within days MacArthur was advertising the availability of rum for sale. Normal transmission was about to resume. A priority for MacArthur was to have his sedition charges dismissed. Johnson appointed Grimes as judge advocate for the new trial, though even as acting governor he had no legal power to do so. And so Grimes and the original six New South Wales Corps officers convened, and they took every opportunity to badmouth Bly and the other persons associated with the earlier prosecution, and the verdict, predictably, was the unanimous acquittal of all charges. Next, Wentworth was tried in relation to the use of recuperating convicts on his farm, and to the amazement of no one, was found not guilty. <laughs> then the methodical reprisals began. Crosley, who had provided legal advice to Bly's administration as required, was charged with some kind of criminal conspiracy in assisting Atkinson Bly, and was sentenced to six years hard labour in the coal mines, a penal settlement to the north in Newcastle. Gore was charged with perjury in relation to MacArthur's arrest on January 25th, and he was held without bail in what Davis describes as a small windowless cell for three months before finally being sentenced to seven years at the coal mines as well. Hayes, who had given evidence in support of Gore, was also sent to the mines, despite having no trial and no sentence passed at all. The chaplain Fulton was suspended from his duties after praying for Bly at one of his services. Indeed, anyone who had acted with Bly had reason to be worried, along with anyone else who had upset MacArthur or the important corps officers. Punitive retribution seemed the order of the day. Atkins very quickly switched camps, to save his own skin no doubt, and was taken back into the fold. He even gave evidence against Bly, doing all he could to please the rebels. He quickly came to terms with MacArthur over the outstanding debt they'd been in dispute over for many months, and so escaped the kind of vengeance handed out to others from the Bly administration and his supporters. MacArthur assumed control of government stores, and it was reported he helped himself to various goods. The Corps returned to the old ways of monopolising imports and of trading and paying debts in rum. Government stock was handed over to various men from the new regime for their own farms, including MacArthur. Johnson also began making land grants to his allies, but otherwise he seemed incapable of actually governing for the advancement of the colony. As happens amongst undisciplined men, it wasn't long before the various corps officers, starting with Abbott just days after the coup, began falling out with MacArthur themselves. And Evett records that by May, MacArthur and many of the officers in the corps were openly feuding with one another. So the solidarity of the Brotherhood eroded once they no longer had Bly to gripe about. Davis records the state of the colony soon began to deteriorate, 
and those badly affected by the return to old unfair arrangements were becoming agitated. There may have been rising potential for the exact civil disorder that Johnson had used as an excuse for his actions. Johnson was sent another petition asking him to remove MacArthur, quote, the scourge of this colony, unquote, from his position of power, explaining that, quote, his monopoly and extortion have been highly injurious to the inhabitants of every description, unquote. Of course he ignored it, but it proved harder to deal with dissension within the Corps, as some had begun resenting MacArthur's self-serving abuse of power, at even their expense. In fact, Johnson had largely left the governing of the colony to MacArthur day to day, returning himself to Parramatta, and MacArthur found many ways to make the task a profitable one. Meanwhile, Bly and his daughter continued their occupation at Government House in Sydney. Despite Johnson and MacArthur stating that Bly would be sent home on the next available ship, he simply refused to go, and knowing that they would be called to account for the mutiny, they seemed unwilling to add to the charges the bodily manhandling of the deposed governor, and so he was not physically forced. Bly felt he was bound to stay and complete his term of governorship, or stay until official advice came from England that he should be reinstated or formally relieved. Indeed, he remained hopeful that they might actually send out a naval force to overthrow the rebels, but of course no such thing was entertained, and even if it had been, it might be a year before any resulting force could arrive. His presence in Sydney gave hope to the sections of the community still loyal, and thus proved to be an irritant to the new regime in subduing the populace. Bly remained under house guard and for much of the time completely isolated from anyone outside Government House, having only his daughter for company. Mary, though, was less restricted, able to visit friends, though none could come to her at Government House, and her circle of friends grew smaller as social pressure was applied by the trading faction and those intimidated withdrew contact. No doubt she spent her days relaying news of and to her imprisoned father. Bly, of course, recorded all the particulars that had led up to the mutiny and gathered all the information that would be needed by the authorities when Johnson and MacArthur would finally have to face the courts. Many of his supporters would have been sending similar information to the influential back in England too, to balance the reports being supplied by the rebels in making their case, and all had to wait while the transport time passed and the authorities digested what had been going on before responding. In fact, the response was surprisingly low-key when it did finally come. The rebels knew they would need to make a good case to justify their actions, and at a meeting of interested persons in Sydney, it was suggested that MacArthur should be sent to England to appraise the Home Office of why Johnson was forced to act as he did. They would allege the corruption and tyranny displayed by Bly and the unrest developing amongst the people of New South Wales were fundamental to his actions. That those displaying unrest were generally only those associated with the trading faction, with personal vendettas and grudges against Bly and his administrators, was not made quite so clear. The crowd was then asked to donate funds to cover MacArthur's costs, and only a few men offered to assist, though even those pledges made on that day were never actually paid. MacArthur would need to fund his own travel. In July of 1808, Lieutenant Colonel Favot returned to New South Wales from leave in England, and, being then the highest-ranking officer in the colony, he took over from Johnston. 
Johnson gave him his account of the circumstances that had led to him arresting Bly, but Favot chose not to talk to Bly about his version of events, nor indeed gather any other intelligence from persons in Sydney. Only hours after arriving, he issued a proclamation in which he declared it beyond his authority to rule the validity of the mutiny, and would therefore simply just assume control until further orders arrived. He seemed content to simply wait for the expected advice that would arrive from the Home Office before too long, exhibiting no obvious direct support for the mutinous actions, nor any loyalty to the deposed Governor, of whom he was no fan himself. In subsequent letters, he noted there was great dispute over the validity of Johnson's actions, but he was himself happy to believe Johnson in his assessment of Bly's corruption, writing that he was, quote, perfectly satisfied that Captain Bly had been acting on a settled plan to destroy and ruin the better class of inhabitants, and that Major Johnson is in possession of incontrovertible proofs of his being guided in the most important concerns of the colony by the advice of George Crosley. And so here we are again, back at the resentment the trading faction felt at Bly taking advice from Crosley because he was an ex-criminal. The better class of inhabitants he was alluding to would have been the corps officers and the transplanted elite, a great many of whom behaved with little integrity and acted almost entirely out of self-interest rather than the good of the colony, or indeed as their profession and loyalty might have dictated. But still, maintaining those class barriers was what it was all about, apparently. Hang integrity. What we see here is the British class system being applied, at its worst, to the detriment of the fledgling society. Though Favot did not reinstate Bly as governor, he did immediately remove the civilian MacArthur from all official positions, thus removing at least one thorn, stopping the healing in Sydney, and he placated him by granting him some prime land in Sydney Town. Even so, it was not long before MacArthur was decrying Favot as a corrupt, tyrannical villain too. I'm seeing a pattern here. I suspect the only man fit to govern, according to MacArthur, was MacArthur himself. Davis suggests while Favot appeared to continue the harsh treatment meted out to Bly supporters, and to some extent quietly supported the ambitions of the trading faction, he did actually attend to the governance of the colony, including keeping a lid on the rum trade and managing the expenditure. He remained in charge until his senior officer, Patterson, finally returned from Van Diemen's Land on the ship The Porpoise, six months later in January 1809, and he stayed on in New South Wales to assist Patterson, who proved to be not up to the job really, and happy to have Favot continue with the administration. When the official relieving governor, Macquarie finally arrived. Favot also provided ongoing assistance to his administration for a time too. When Patterson came ashore and took command, he also decided against visiting Bly, but he did correspond with him, keeping up the pressure to have him depart New South Wales. But Bly was determined he would not abandon his post until formally relieved by the King's order. As Bly was still the senior naval commander in the region, the captain of the porpoise did manage a visit. Bly gave him instructions which would clash with those from Patterson, and with the captain opting to follow those orders of his naval commander, quite the bun fight ensued, the porpoise staying put in Sydney Harbour for three months, much to the annoyance of the Patterson-Favot administration. Finally, Captain Porteous was ordered to sail to Norfolk Island, where the penal settlement there was being closed, and the inmates relocated to Van Diemen's Land. 
When Bly again insisted that the porpoise stay put, Patterson finally snapped, sending Johnson and Abbott to Government House to arrest him and bring him into custody at the barracks. Once again, Mary attempted to intervene, and when brushed off, she ran along beside the carriage, following her detained father all the way to the barracks. And despite threats she would also be taken into custody, she then refused to leave. Quite the chip off the stubborn old Bly block, that Mary. <laughs> and so the frustrated officers put the defiant father and daughter into adjoining rooms at the barracks under guard. Bly was then informed that he would be placed on the schooner Ezramina as soon as the vessel arrived to be deported from New South Wales, though its destination was not made clear to him. For a week, Bly maintained his defiance before deciding to negotiate a better outcome. He began his gambit suggesting he would leave if he and Mary could travel instead on the sturdier ship the porpoise and taking a number of men with him. Patterson agreed, provided that Bly left as soon as possible, did not interfere any further in the administration's actions and would return directly to England. So the negotiated agreement was put to paper and signed by both parties. The Blyes were then allowed to return to Government House and make preparations for their departure. Bly made contact with Campbell, Palmer and some other loyal men who would travel with him and provide information about the mutiny on their arrival in England. Johnson, MacArthur and a few of their colleagues and supporters were also preparing to leave for England on another ship. The time was approaching when they would all need to make their cases. Bly received a warm send-off by a representation of the Hawkesbury settlers, thanking him for effecting the much-needed reforms and making their feelings about the corrupt New South Wales Corps clear. So the two factions were as far apart as ever, and judging the truth of the claims was going to be a tedious business for those back in England. What was abundantly clear was that each faction needed to have reliable men who could give evidence illustrating the situation. Unfortunately for Bly, those men who were to accompany him were turned away at the wharf at the last minute and stopped from boarding. Bly, as senior naval commander, tried to have the captain of the ship carrying MacArthur, Johnson and co. refuse to board them too. But after a few days of posturing, it became clear that this tactic was unsustainable. In the end, both ships sailed. Bly's without his supporters, while Johnson and MacArthur headed straight to England with theirs. Bly decided, as Patterson had broken his word about allowing his supporters to accompany him, he would break his word about returning straight to England. Instead, he would sail for Hobart and try and get assistance from Collins there. I can't think this was a smart move on his part. He had been at sea when the bounty mutineers were making their defence all those years back, and despite his success in that case, their unchallenged testimony, in his absence, did damage to his honour and standing in the public eye. Now he was about to allow MacArthur and Johnson many months in England, shoring up support and taking every opportunity to plant doubt and sully his reputation again, while he would be awaiting it out half a world away for some still unknown outcome. His bulldog desire to stay put was stronger than his need to defend himself, it seemed, and that might point to just how certain he was of his position, or to illustrate a particular stubbornness that failed to see the writing on the wall and the damage that the New South Wales mutineers might inflict. In predictable form, his stay in Hobart proved to be an ordeal for everyone involved as well. At first received cordially by the commander there, Collins, 
when he received a letter from Patterson claiming that Bly had broken the terms of their agreement, without mentioning his own breach, no doubt, things got tense and escalated into quite the uncomfortable standoff, with Bly soon afterwards removing his ship from Hobart and anchoring off Bruny Island for over six months. Davis suggested they provisioned their ship by pretty much looting any passing vessels. It was clearly reaching a whole other level of crazy. The English administration really had to step in, sending clear instructions to all involved and outlining the processes involved to resolve the matter. Missives were arriving thick and fast from the supporters of all parties and it was obvious a major investigation would be required to get to the bottom of the New South Wales dramas. But they were taking their time and all the while further problems were being created in New South Wales while Favot and Patterson were in charge. One citizen wrote to the English administration, quote, The officers and their favourites have been finely enriched by this Republican government. Patterson gets drunk at his government house in Parramatta, and Favot is left in Sydney to do as he likes, giving pardons, grants and leases, unquote. And indeed, 400 grants were made to fellow officers and supporters of the regime during this period. But interestingly, this time MacArthur himself was the recipient of only three acres from the more than 67,000 given away in that period. Not the favourite anymore, perhaps, and then unable to pressure those in charge once he had left the colony for England. The new governor would need to manage the fallout from this period when he arrived. In England, Johnston would have to answer the charge of mutiny, though the trial could not begin until Bly arrived. MacArthur, as a civilian, would need to answer sedition charges, but as the sedition took place in New South Wales, he would need to stand trial there. But for the time being, he would lobby and undertake business in England and see how Johnston and Bly fared. While the news of the Rum Rebellion would have reached England sometime mid-1808, they were more than 12 months responding. Davis suggests they may have been too distracted by Napoleon and the events taking place in Europe to be very concerned about trouble in their faraway, small and mostly unimportant colony of New South Wales. They would have been confounded too by the ambiguous accounts they were receiving from the pro- and anti-Bly factions. All the letters and evidence gathered was to be examined by three respected lawyers, despite the attempts at character assassination orchestrated by the senior corps men, and MacArthur in particular, these lawyers could see that Bly had carried out the instructions given to him. They noted the New South Wales Corps officers had been involved in the rum trade, which was contrary to their first duty, and that Bly's legal restrictions clearly riled the officers involved and the civilians heavily involved working in the rum trade, such as MacArthur. In fact, they totally rejected the premise that Bly had been an intolerable tyrant when he had simply been applying his instructed rule of law with no unlawful or wrongful acts noted. The worst they could find against Bly was a tendency to intemperate language, a charge he'd had to answer before in his career. One member of an earlier crew recording, quote, Bly's manner and disposition were not pleasant and his appointment gave very general disgust to the officers, unquote. Certainly, he's described members of the Corps as, quote, tremendous buggers, wretches and villains, unquote. But as we've discussed before, Bly having an aggressive potty mouth is hardly an excuse for such ongoing antagonism and disloyalty displayed by the military men of the Corps. This behaviour was also dished out to the more temperate governors before Bly. It was deemed necessary to try Johnson and the other officers involved in the coup in a court-martial under the Mutiny Act. 
At last, in reviewing this matter, the British government eventually decided replacing Atkins as judge advocate might be a good idea after all. Come to think of it, maybe removing the New South Wales Corps might help reshape the colony too. Hmm, well, well, well. Army man Lieutenant Colonel Lachlan Macquarie was chosen to replace Bly, and he brought his own military unit, the 73rd Highland Regiment, which should finally address the issues of discipline and loyalty and make the next governor's job a great deal easier. Having reached rock bottom, it seems New South Wales might be afforded some quality administrators and be given the chance to build a free society beside the convicts, recovering from the difficulties it had faced since the New South Wales Corps had arrived. At last, in May of 1809, Macquarie and his regiment sailed for New South Wales, arriving in December. He had orders to restore Bly to his governorship for 24 hours before relieving him of duty and having him recalled to England on behalf of His Majesty. Of course, Bly was still sulking on the porpoise off Bruny Island, so he didn't get to experience his 24 hours of public vindication. Though, in some ways, you have to think that might have been a blessing, too. 24 hours was plenty of time for him to royally crap off Macquarie. <laughs> though he would get the chance to do that before his departure. <laughs> With the 73rd now on duty, the men of the New South Wales Corps were advised they were to be disbanded and absorbed into the regular unit of the 102nd Regiment. They would return to England as soon as the ships were available. Some who desired to stay in New South Wales applied to join the 73rd, but wisely only a very few were accepted. The rest would have to take their chances fighting the French, a far cry from bullying the emancipists and free settlers of Sydney. Every legal judgment since Bly was deposed was set aside, all convictions quashed and those imprisoned released. Macquarie made formally known the validity of Crossley's advice to Bly, thus ensuring everyone knew the rule of law was important and had always been upheld by Bly. And all the grants made by Johnson, Favreau and Patterson were rescinded. Those in Sydney could be in no doubt now of the poor quality of the interim administration and of the determination of the Home Office and the new Governor to bring New South Wales back from the brink. And after assessing the mood on the ground in the colony, Macquarie was able to report back to England that, quote, Bly's administration was extremely unpopular, particularly among the higher orders of people, but he went on to declare that he'd heard of, quote, no act which could in any degree form an excuse for the mutiny, and very few complaints have been made to me against him, and even those few are rather of a trifling nature, unquote. Bly did return to Sydney in mid-January before departing to England, and he and Mary were treated with all courtesy by the Macquarie's and the senior officers of the 73rd Regiment. The presence of Favreau and some others in Macquarie's administration really needled Bly, though, and, as might be expected, it wasn't too long before he defended Macquarie and pretty much worn out his welcome. However, he was keen to stay and gather the evidence he thought useful for the court-martial that he would attend in England. By April, he had collected what he needed and was preparing to depart. At the eleventh hour, as they were aboard ship soon to depart, Mary received a marriage proposal from Lieutenant Colonel O'Connell of the 73rd, who'd been keeping company with the Blyes while in Sydney. Mary was delighted and accepted, but Bly was greatly surprised and took quite some time to believe that she'd be keen to stay in the colony as O'Connell's wife. Well, good on her then. 
so there was a delay of another week before they cast off while a rushed wedding was arranged, and she said her emotional goodbyes to her father. With Bly about to be gone from the colony, no longer a focal point for the anti-MacArthur factions, distress over the rebellion would soon be expected to fade. But the presence of Mary, his staunch supporter, who would hold a lifelong grudge against those in the colony who'd facilitated his downfall, added a degree of difficulty for O'Connell in his official role in the administration. Formal dinners could be difficult, depending on the guest lists, and it was noted that, over time, O'Connell himself adopted Mary's attitude to Bly's antagonists. Davis noted, eventually, Macquarie felt that, in the interests of fostering harmony in the colony, moving the O'Connells to a new posting might be a good idea. And in 1813, the 73rd was relocated to the then Salon. When Bly arrived in England, preparations for Johnson's court-martial began. Johnson, of course, was the main focus, but other officers had been involved, and if Bly had had his way, many others would have been hauled over the coals too. But a lot of time had passed. Patterson, the final commander before Macquarie arrived, died during his return voyage to England. Fauveau stayed in New South Wales for some time, keeping a low profile and being of use to Macquarie in the early months after his arrival, and not being part of the original action, escaped any censure. Many other officers and privates who took part could plead that they were bound to act just following orders of their superior officers, and also escaped punishment. Johnston and the six officers who had precipitated the mutiny by refusing to try MacArthur with Judge Advocate Atkins were all originally expected to stand trial, though in the end only Johnston was tried, in May of 1811, on a charge of mutiny. MacArthur had to be held account in the New South Wales courts, but he avoided ever having to do so by staying in England until the sting had gone out of the matter, and it seemed it was no longer in the public interest to pursue it. His wife Elizabeth ran their holdings in Australia and developed a very successful venture over the years. MacArthur was always credited with being the founder of the wool industry in Australia. Both he and Samuel Marsden were importers of the merino sheep which flourished here, and others were heavily involved too, of course. Elizabeth, however, should really be given top billing in the MacArthur family ventures, as she was on the ground supervising and making the decisions at the pointy end during that period, breeding up the stock that would eventually produce the fine merino wool. It became Australia's most profitable export for many, many decades, and gave Australia one of the highest standards of living in the world, according to the documentary Riding on the Sheep's Back, still available as a secondary school history resource. More on that in the MacArthur episode to follow up soon. Davis contends that Johnson's court-martial clearly outlines Bly's rule and the causes of the Rum Rebellion. Each justification for Johnson's action was examined and tested. Johnson's contention that Bly had been threatening, seizing private property, misusing the law and the administration for his own purposes, and generally behaving in a tyrannical, oppressive and corrupt manner, was unable to be supported. So desperate was their desire to discredit Bly, Johnson felt the need to warn the court that he would, quote, prove that Bly had been guilty of hereforto unheard of and disgraceful cowardice, unquote, referring to his arrest on the day of the rebellion. Now what that had to do with Johnson making a decision to arrest the governor and take control of the colony in the first place, which was in fact the object of the investigation, escapes me. The three soldiers who discovered Bly gave conflicting evidence about how he was found. One said he ran his rifle under the bed and it jagged Bly's foot, causing his discovery. Bly then rose and climbed over the top of the bed. 
Another said he lifted the hanging bedspread and found him under the bed, then dragged him out by his collar. One gave evidence the bed was high enough to hide a man like Bly underneath, and another that it was only a foot from the floor with not enough space for Bly. It was all too clear to the court that the evidence being given by many of the soldiers, officers, MacArthur and other rebel supporters was given with the intention of blackening Bly's character as much as possible for their own sakes and to help Johnson get off his charge. An increasingly desperate Johnson stuck to his defence, though. The rebellion was a necessary one, supported and demanded by the good people of Sydney to avoid greater unrest and uprising. It was orderly and as violence-free as possible, conducted by men of honour, under the most grievous circumstances, and in no way associated with any personal vendettas. Of course, there were those who already doubted Bly's character, such as the friend of MacArthur's, who wrote, quote, His concealment under the feather bed made me smile, but did not surprise me in the least. I had long possessed the strongest testimony from a friend, who had served with Governor Bly, that he was not only a tyrant, but a poltroon. <laughs> Unquote. And there's a word I'm not familiar with, but the online dictionary says it's archaic, meaning an utter coward. So there we go. To Johnson's comments in court, in which he would assert that Bly was found hiding coward beneath the bed, Bly responded, quote, As to the situation in which it was said I was found, I can prove by two witnesses that it was utterly impossible, and I should have done so in the first instance had I not thought that Colonel Johnson was incapable of degrading his defence by the admission of slander which, if true, affords him no excuse for his mutinous actions, and, if false, is highly disgraceful. I know that Mr. MacArthur wrote the dispatch in which the circumstance is mentioned with vulgar triumph, but I could not anticipate that Colonel Johnson's address to the court would have been written in the same spirit, and that, after being the victim of MacArthur's intrigues, he would allow himself to be made the tool of his revenge. Unquote. Ah, Johnson as Jack Bodice's tool again. <laughs> Hawkey records that Bly's final statement to the court, including, quote, In all my general orders or public regulations, not one appears founded on private interest or even friendly partiality. The barter of spirits, a source of emolument to the other governors, I prohibited. The confined distribution of spirits I extended. The former practice of irregular committal to prison I abolished. The limits of arbitrary punishment I contracted. I consulted the general good of the colony instead of allowing myself to be guided by the selfish policy of a few individuals, and I determined that all ranks alike should be respectful and obedient to the law. But these were offences which rendered me unfit to govern. In other words, it was no longer convenient to them or suited their purposes that I should, and accordingly a scheme was devised to remove me. Unquote. He further stated, Quote, I'm not anxious to fix upon Colonel Johnston the charge of corruption or lawless ambition. What share he had in the formation of the plot I know not. Whether his absence from Government House, though twice sent for, was preconcerted, the extent of his illness feigned, I cannot say. But when he thought his presence necessary, he ought to have afforded it to the counsels of the Governor, and not have yielded to the artful misrepresentations of a few designing individuals who held no office and were of no consideration to the colony, unquote. So a pretty clear indictment here on his actions. His duty was to the king and his representative the governor, and not to the likes of MacArthur. 
If an uprising was imminent from the people of Sydney, why did he not consult with the governor and work with the civil police forces and prepare the king's military to contain and disperse any such uprising? The men of New South Wales found a real, properly constituted court, staffed by competent practitioners of the law, quite a different prospect from the New South Wales courts they had used for their own grandstanding purposes. Used to manipulating the courts and playing to a gallery of supporters, they found here that they could not use the tactics which had caused so much difficulty for Bly in New South Wales. Those giving evidence were limited to presenting only the relevant information and were expertly cross-examined and their evidence tested. They had to convince the very savvy court of the justifications for their actions. Johnson's first defence was to try and shut down the case altogether, claiming so much time had passed since the incident it was too late, <laughs> but that was overruled. Next he began trying to demonstrate that Bly was ever the tyrant by questioning him on his own previous court-martials and mutinies, as he would have done in New South Wales court. This line of questioning was quickly discredited, and Johnston had to shift his focus to New South Wales, reporting a number of complaints against Bly. These included MacArthur not being granted 5,000 acres, as he expected, the houses built illegally on the domain being removed and leases reclaimed, the convicts removed from Wentworth and his subsequent punishment, and the confiscation of the stills, the loss of the ship's bond for transporting an escaped convict, collusion with Campbell on importing of goods, and etc., etc., etc. They exposed his rude but private opinion of the incompetent Atkins and showed their outrage at his use of Crossley, the ex-convict, for legal advice. But Bly's actions were all predicated on the orders he was given in the end, even Johnson's own witnesses, including Atkins, who had worked just as comfortably with the new regime once it was in place, was forced to admit Bly was actually an honourable, honest man, and that he did not take advantage of his position or unfairly interfere in local legal proceedings. For each specific illustration Johnston's witnesses tried to use, there seemed evidence to indicate Bly had acted in good faith and the complaint was shown up as more in the vein of a personal disgruntlement undermining the witness's credibility. It became clearer and clearer that the Corps were acting to advance their own personal desires rather than provide the loyalty and duty that should have been afforded the Governor. There was no justification for their extreme action demonstrated beyond personal interest, and the court-martial found Johnston guilty. Given the seriousness of the charge, he was very lucky to be simply cashiered that is, dismissed from the army, a dishonourable discharge of sorts. Some have considered that he was perhaps seen as MacArthur's puppet in this matter, though they had long since ceased working together as comrades. Hawkley recorded the meagre penalty was noted by the Prince Regent, who was to endorse the sentence on behalf of the King, commenting that although the light punishment had been based upon the extraordinary circumstances that appeared to the rebels to have existed, no circumstances could fully excuse Johnson's actions, which were contrary to every principle of good order and discipline. It was also suggested that such an outcome might assist in the healing of the destructive factions in the colony, and afforded a chance to develop, unhindered by baggage from the rebellion. Hawkey distilled their thinking like this, quote, Johnston had been caught up in some extremely difficult and unusual circumstances, but that he was not the prime mover, fool more than rogue, unquote. Though I must say, every governor before Bly might suggest the circumstances were not that unusual. The Corps' bad behaviour had been going on since they arrived. 
Anyway, evidence did come to light in the years following from personal letters which indicated that Johnston certainly was a deliberate conspirator, if a subordinate one, in the plan promoted by MacArthur. MacArthur's evidence also pretty much showed that they had premeditated the moves, as he had to admit that he was released from jail on the orders of Johnston, who had already signed his release document as the acting governor. Only afterwards did MacArthur present Johnston with the dodgy petition, requesting he takes charge and arrest Bly, and MacArthur had quite the public history of threatening to destroy all the New South Wales governors, Hunt recording one of MacArthur's written threats to Bly after he was refused some item from the government stores, saying, quote, It would be better if he gave it to me and some of the other respectable gentlemen of the colony. If he does not, he will perhaps get another voyage in his launch again. <laughs> Unquote. So, while Johnston was found guilty, Bly was never entirely satisfied with the outcome. MacArthur, the main protagonist, not being a military man, could not be held accountable there in England, and in time, even the prospect of a trial in New South Wales faded. So many remained unpunished, and he had spent such a long time being humiliated, no wonder he remained disappointed. Hawkey suggests, though, that as with the bounty mutiny, he afterwards suffered no loss socially, friends of MacArthur aside, or career-wise, reminding us that he gained several promotions and was clearly still favoured in high places, the Prince Regent inviting him to kiss his hand in a very public show of support. Bly's cousin noted, if he had been under a cloud, he would not have been presented at court. Bly refocused his energy on fighting for the pension he had been expecting, not allowing the events out of his control in New South Wales to rob him of the anticipated compensation. And he was successful in receiving the promised pension. At 62, he was pretty much past commanding a warship again, though he was promoted twice more before retiring from the Navy. He died in 1817 and was buried with his beloved wife in St Mary's Church, Lambeth. <laughs> though Pobgy once again provides an interesting postscript, suggesting that, quote, there were reports shortly afterwards several corpses in surrounding graves banded together to overthrow him and take over his plot, unquote. Very funny, but also quite likely given his track record. <laughs> Hawkey sums up Bly as, quote, perhaps a man who was good-intentioned but bad-tempered, wise but often intolerant, a man who could not leaven command with diplomacy a man who was highly skilled, principled and courageous, but on occasions blundering, uncompromising and impetuous, unquote. And he was highly unlikely to have been the monster of MacArthur's assessment. I think that would be my estimation of Bly too. Hawkey wrote in 1975, quote, Except among naval men, William Bly has had the misfortune to be remembered more for his failings than for his very considerable achievements, unquote. I think we can say since the 1970s there has been a lot more scholarship and a reassessment of the sources and evidence. Christian of the Bounty and MacArthur in New South Wales have also had their roles and behaviour reanalyzed, and I think Bly was a much more ethical character than Australians of the past might have been encouraged to believe. Hawkey asserted, quote, School children were long taught that Bly was the villain in the uprising, unquote and MacArthur was always the darling of the old school history books. Johnston returned to New South Wales as a civilian, quietly living out and working his Annandale farm, becoming a respected member of, of his community there until his death in 1823. He was buried in the family vault at Annandale. 
No further action was taken against any other officers or soldiers of the Corps, though as mentioned previously, they were disbanded and removed from the colony to other duties. With the new governor, Macquarie, having orders to arrest and try MacArthur for treason on his return, rather than face that possibility, he chose to stay in England for almost a decade. He seems to have declined over those years, though, particularly his mental health, complaining to his wife in letters of, quote, the malady of the mind, and that he experienced considerable violence with an extraordinary irritation of the nerves, and such a dreadful depression of spirits as no one can conceive the extent unless they were to suffer the same way, unquote. At some point he did write to Elizabeth and consider selling it all up and returning the family to England, but she was not prepared to throw away all the work put in, and the next generation of MacArthur's were well involved in making progress with the sheep breeding. MacArthur continued to try and punish Bly, though, <laughs> suing him for £20,000 for some loss or other, but that suit was unsuccessful. In his tenth year away, the authorities finally advised him he would no longer be charged should he return to New South Wales, and they removed their objections to him doing so on the proviso that he agreed not to involve himself in public life there. And of course, after nearly ten years away, the vastly expanded colony had moved on too. He was no longer the only big wheel at the cracker factory. <laughs> He retained his propensity for volatility in his dealings with others, though, including the obligatory run-in with Macquarie, which had him complaining to England again, resulting in an investigation and finally the exasperated resignation and return of Macquarie to address that inquiry in 1821. In the midst of a dispute with a future governor, Darling, MacArthur boasted that, quote, he had never yet failed in ruining a man who had become obnoxious to him, unquote. What an absolute self-important piece of work he was. In 1825, despite his agreement not to involve himself in public life, MacArthur became a founding member of the new Legislative Council in New South Wales, but his mental state was seriously deteriorating, and by 1832 his own family had petitioned to have him declared insane. He lived the remainder of his life secluded with his family at Camden until his death in 1834 and was buried at Camden Park. The great success of the MacArthur sheep breeding program, particularly the inclusion of the imported merino which resulted in local hybrids able to produce superfine wool, was a great achievement, and this success seems to have completely overshadowed his difficulties. It must have been much easier to blame the distant Bly for all the trouble than question the accountability of the founder of Australia's successful sheep breeding and wool producing empire. I think we can be more nuanced these days, though, and say he was a difficult man who clearly benefited from, as Hawkey described it, his discreditable beginnings. He certainly worked actively to oust not just Bly, but other governors as well, and boasted about it later in life. But we can also acknowledge, with his spectacularly successful partnership with Elizabeth, they, along with Samuel Marsden and others, were able to foster and build on early sheep breeding to create the foundations of a very important commodity for Australia, a lucrative and successful wool industry which benefited Australia's economic development over many, many decades, and we can be grateful for that, perhaps. In 1835, Mary Bly O'Connell and her husband returned to New South Wales. He had continued his successful career in the military, being knighted for his services, and was then in command of the armed forces across all colonies in Australia. They appear to have maintained a happy, supportive and successful marriage. 
after some negotiation, she was able to reclaim much of the Camperdown property that Bly had abandoned on his departure, and they settled there. For a very brief spell, O'Connell was asked to act as New South Wales Governor, so she had another short stint as the Lady of Government House. That first government house was demolished in 1846, and I think the site is now occupied by the Museum of Sydney. Mary moved to live in Paris after the death of her husband in 1848, though her eldest son stayed on in Australia. In reflecting on the actions which upset MacArthur and the trading faction men so much, it was shown that Bly acted in all cases in accordance with his instructions, even if he might have been vindictively pleased by the ability to do so in accordance with the laws and in the attempt to raise the colony up as requested by the Home Office. It is possible, and indeed quite probable, given his past behaviour, that under duress or agitation he spoke to those involved in a blustering and offensive way. But in all cases they were simply on the wrong side of the regulations and were furious they could not get their own way. So, January 26th, eh? <laughs> For some, it marks the date of colonial occupation and for some, the Invasion Day. But how many of us take the time to celebrate our own homegrown military coup? Can't believe Bundaberg Rum isn't promoting as a special rum-drinking day. It's a missed marketing opportunity there, surely. As David Hunt wrote, the evening of the coup began a fine tradition of, quote, celebrating the national holiday with fighting, disrespect for authority, a barbie and a piss-up. You can't get more Australian than that, unquote. But seriously, folks, <laughs> unlike the Eureka uprising that occurred half a century later, the Rum Rebellion was no victory for democracy against tyranny, as Davis put it. And he also suggested, the Rum Rebellion should not be accorded a significance and virtue it does not merit. And I agree. It was no attempt to make things better for the common man. Instead, it was an abuse of power promoted and facilitated by a group of grasping, self-serving corrupt men who wished only to continue the practices that had been so lucrative for them at the great expense of the common good in a fragile evolving society. Every previous governor was sent off exhausted from the constant power struggles with these same men and Bly, being one who stood unyielding against their machinations, had to be taken down by the most extreme of actions. In looking again at this episode of our history, I pretty quickly came to think that whatever kind of unpleasant jerk Bly might have been, on a personal level, as the governor, he was at least focused on the overall good of the colony, something that cannot be said of the coup leaders. Okay, so now this month's podcast recommendation. And this time, I'm encouraging you to take a look at the Talking Tudors podcast. If you're a fan of all things Tudor, you'll find this a really rich and rewarding podcast to subscribe to. Natalie Gruniger interviews the most interesting Tudor experts who investigate and illuminate many aspects of the Tudor world and the historical objects that survive. Natalie is incredibly committed and knowledgeable, and I'm sure you'll find it a very interesting podcast. I've placed a link to Talking Tudors podcast on my podcast recommendations page, so go and have a listen. So I'll catch up with you next time for a shorter standalone episode, hopefully something light for the holidays, and at some point I will produce a postscript to this Rum Rebellion series which will look at the MacArthur's and the Australian wool industry. I've got some other great topics to look at in the new year, so many more stories to come. So meanwhile then, have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.